Listeners, my name is David Blakesley, and I am the host of the Criterion Reflections podcast. And I'm here to welcome you to episode number 100 of this modest little program. Uh, this is a show that I've been doing for a few years now, uh, growing out of a blog that I started back in 2008. And I am very pleased to be at this particular juncture along the way. Uh, who knows how much longer I'll keep going. My ambition is to keep going as long as I live, <laughs> or as long as my voice holds out, and uh, hopefully that'll be a good long time indeed. Uh, but we are at a point of uh, sort of marking um, a milestone, a landmark, uh, a certain achievement. We're in triple digits for episodes now, so I guess there's a bit of a testament to longevity there, and uh, stick-to-itiveness, as they used to say, and uh, perseverance. Um, you know, all to what effect? Well, I may have a few things to say about that later on in this episode, but let me just tell you what I have in mind. Um, I haven't even finished the, the full recording yet. I'm just kind of getting this process started now, but uh, I'm going to have a couple segments, uh, maybe three segments altogether. This here is an introduction, just again welcoming you as you tune in, and uh, then from there, I'm going to drop in a discussion that I had with my friend Alexander Cormier. He uh, hosts a program called Full Spectrum Cinema. It's kind of a smallish, uh, local-level radio broadcast, an online radio, I guess you should say. And uh, Alexander uh, recently mentioned on my page on Facebook, the Criterion Reflections, the group, that uh, The Last Movie, a film directed in 1971 by Dennis Hopper, uh, was coming to the Criterion channel. He specifically mentioned me as somebody who would have an interest in the film, and uh, he wondered if I had a sort of a regret since that was a film from 1971, and I am currently in 1972. So we've kind of already passed that point in the timeline. But, uh, you know, he mentioned me, and he certainly sort of knew what he was talking about because this is absolutely a film that I would have eagerly welcomed into the Criterion Collection had they uh, negotiated the rights to release it. Instead, uh, a company called Arbelos put that one out on Blu-ray here in the United States. I think there's another version... Is it Indicator or Arrow or whatever over in the UK? So there's kind of two uh, very quality um, packages featuring that film that are currently available. 
unless maybe one of them's gone out of print already. I don't know. But anyways, uh, it did come to the Criterion channel recently, and so that was a pretty good pretext for me to say, ah, it's a Criterion movie now, uh, according to the rules that I set up, somewhat arbitrary, but anybody who's listened to this program knows I cover films that are on the channel as well as the physical media releases. Uh, but yeah, the, the last movie, uh, directed by Dennis Hopper, and with a pretty cool cast of beautiful people from the early 70s, uh, the new Hollywood scene and a few others. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a pretty amazing work. Uh, quite a making of story behind it. And Alexander and I get into that in the conversation that you'll hear very shortly. Uh, so that was kind of a nice piece that fell into place. If you listened to the end of episode 99, in which uh, William Remmers and I talked about Buck and the Preacher, <laughs> I uh, concluded that episode with a kind of a, you know, an acknowledgement that episode 100 was just around the corner, but I really wasn't sure what I was going to do yet. In my regular chronology of films, the next one in line is John Waters' Pink Flamingos, which I guess in its own way would be a suitable, you know, <laughs> centennial type of commemorative film to discuss. It's pretty epic and pretty incredible and unforgettable in its own way. But I actually think the last movie is a very worthy uh, contender to say what's the focus of my attention film-wise in this 100th episode of the podcast. So I am breaking a rule. I am going backwards in my timeline. But I think the last movie, uh, because of its kind of legendary status and even the topics that it covers uh, are very meta referential cinematic uh, meditation on the making of films the impact of movie making on local cultures the the, the clash of <laughs> civilizations if you will uh, as Dennis Hopper and his crew went down to Peru and encountered native peoples uh, for whom making a movie was not an everyday type of experience. And, uh, and all of the cosmic implications and uh, kind of runaway trains of thought that were going through Dennis Hopper's mind as he went ahead and made that movie. And just all the things that were going on. Uh, like I say, there's, there's just a ton of material and stuff to reflect upon in that film. So I think it does make a very... Uh, like I said, a, a, a worthwhile and uh, substantial film to sort of put at the heart of this 100th episode. Uh, but after that conversation plays itself out, I'm going to take some time to uh, just wax a little philosophical, if you will, and talk about my views or my thoughts on podcasting and kind of where this particular project has taken me over the years. Um, I don't want to get too maudlin. I don't want to issue some kind of eloquent, grandiose statement about the meaning of it all, but I might approach that. <laughs> we'll see what uh, comes out when I get to recording that portion. But I do want to, I guess, get a little bit of perspective and share some of the things that I don't always get a chance to say when the focus is on a particular film. Uh, and I won't have any other guests on this episode either, which is, you know, one of the things I thought about was maybe just even doing kind of a, a bunch of quick little, you know, chat-ups with a lot of my regular guests. Uh, but that's 
that's too complicated. So I'm not going to put myself through that kind of rigor to, uh, you know, line up all these people and talk to them about five or 10 minutes and tell me, what's your favorite moment from being a guest on Criterion Reflections? <laughs> I don't really see a need of going down that road. This is not the Friends reunion or anything like that, right? Uh, but I, I do have a few ideas about things I want to say. And uh, again, just kind of an acknowledgement that, uh, yeah, I've been doing this for a while and uh, it's had an impact on my life. And it is a bit of my own kind of contribution to the larger culture for whatever that's worth and how people, you know, live their life and think about things. Uh, if I can be an influence in a positive direction, uh, whether that's through the art and the aesthetics or the um, values about how we review, regard other people, how we conduct ourselves in this world, what we prioritize as human beings uh, to focus our energies and attention on, uh, you know, that's getting into a little bit more you know, deeper territory. And even though I think of myself as somebody who's willing to discuss the larger implications of a film and the, you know, the more profound or heavy themes that a movie touches on, I mean, I, I definitely enjoy movies that have the courage to lead our thoughts and attention into um, challenging territory, not necessarily just uncomfortable territory, but, you know, movies that have something, you know, significant to say, and that means they can be very serious or they can be pretty wild and comical and um, sometimes even kind of ephemeral, you know, um, but there's still a message, there's still something worth pondering, or as I say in the title of my podcast, reflecting on, that, uh, you know, goes beyond just uh, the, the commercial aspects or even just the, you know, the effort that it took to put a story on screen and to give people work and to provide some amusement and entertainment. Those are all pretty worthy objectives in filmmaking, but I, I do like films that try to address us on that kind of heart level where it's like, who are you and what are you about and why do you do what you do? And if they can help me understand myself better, that's a plus. If they help me understand what other people do and how other people frame their lives and, uh, you know, focus their perceptions then I benefit from that. And if they can, in a very larger sense, transform culture or at least contribute to a larger effort to make humanity a little bit more compassionate, a little bit more self-aware, a little less destructive and greedy and um, exploitative of each other. I mean, that's that's the thought that's been on my mind quite a bit in recent <laughs> months, years, <laughs> decades, is why are people so awful to each other? And, you know, there's a lot of that kind of hatred and contempt going around in, in all different levels of society. And, and, of course, our attitude towards, you know, the world, the other living species and the you know the the environment um, you know the creation if you want to call it that or just the uh 
the cosmos that we inhabit, it's like, why do people have such a, uh, you know, nihilistic, um, sort of cannibalistic uh, attitude about wasting and exploiting and devouring uh, what's good? And uh, why is it so hard for us to be kind and considerate and and patient with each other? You know, those are those are questions that trouble me, and uh, you know, kind of keep my mind racing sometimes at night about why are things the way they are. And yeah, obviously there's philosophy and there's religion and there's science and there's history, sociology, psychology, all of these different ways of trying to explain and address that. But at the heart of it all, there are some just fundamental mysteries. And so I I guess I'm already <laughs> kind of going there, but I don't want my introduction to be too long. So maybe I'll just cut it off very shortly in a minute or two before we get into the last movie conversation. Uh, so yeah, stick around if you are into that kind of thing. If you just want to hear me talk about the movie, um, then you can just do that and, you know, tune me out. <laughs> it doesn't really matter to me all that much. I'll just have said what I said, gotten it out of my system for a bit, and uh, just put a little more uh, of my own thought and expression into this archive that will you know, go where it goes uh, once I'm done recording it, putting it on the internet, and letting whatever happens to these files in the long run uh, proceed. So, okay, that's my introduction. Uh, next, you'll hear a little bit of transition music, and then Alexander Cormier will uh, guide us through his, uh, his program, Full Spectrum Cinema, in which he and I discussed Dennis Hopper's last movie. So, I'll see you on the other side of all that. Welcome to Full Spectrum Cinema. I'm your host, Alex Cormier. You're listening to Kootenai Co-op Radio on CJLY 93.5 FM in Nelson. And today I'm very, very excited to have a guest, David Blakesley, the host of the Criterion Reflections podcast, uh, the Out of the Box podcast, and a rising star on TikTok uh, <laughs> here to join me to talk about Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie. So David, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Alex. I'm really happy to be chatting with you. You've been a pretty good uh, commenter and supporter of my podcast, and it's pretty nice to kind of make more direct acquaintance and especially happy to have a chance to talk about this really fascinating film and this whole project, uh, The Last Movie. Yeah, I, I've, I'm a big fan of your show. Um, I've been listening for, I guess, a couple of years now, and it was definitely a big influence on me for wanting to get into talking about movies there was just something about the way that 
that you did it. I really like um, how deeply you look into the films, but also keeping it really fun. Uh, so, yeah, I, I really have a lot of respect for the work that you've been doing for quite a long time now, hey? Yeah, no, I started this whole Criterion Reflections thing back in, well, 2008. I created a blog, which was just kind of a chance for me to write down impressions. This, of course, was back before Letterboxd and even before, you know, like Facebook had as much Criterion and film-related stuff on it as it seems to nowadays. So I just kind of followed the example of other bloggers and started writing reviews. And then in 2009, I had this idea, let's just kind of cover the Criterion collection in chronological order. So I've made a spreadsheet, listed all of the titles that Criterion had released up to that time, uh, put them in the order that they were originally released according to IMDb. And so uh, from like 1922, I think was Nanook of the North, all the way through 1968, I did essays, you know, like written reviews. Um, and in 2010, I started partnering with CriterionCast.com and I did a show called The Eclipse Viewer with my friend Trevor Baird. We talked about all the films on Criterion's Eclipse series and I would review, you know, new releases and things like that on CriterionCast. And then uh, when I got to the year 1969, I decided to switch my efforts from blogging over to podcasting. And so that's what I continue to do is just methodically working my way through the Criterion collection, like I said, in chronological order. And we talk about films that were released on the uh, you know, Laserdiscs back in the day and uh, their Eclipse series and even things that are like on the Criterion channel that are like physical media releases. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And it's like I've created this little community of, of guests, uh, people who, appear with me pretty regularly and then i've got listeners who just kind of enjoy the the journey you know so we're in 1972 right now in my podcast and uh, this is a film from 1971 that had not been released on criterion in any format but now it is on the criterion channel so i think alex you had actually mentioned that you know that this film was popping up on the channel and and uh, yeah, I was happy to have an excuse to go backwards. So one of my rules is that I never go back. Like if I've already passed the point in the timeline and Criterion releases a film from a year previously, I'll watch it and I'll enjoy it, but I'm not going to make a podcast episode about it. But this is like the perfect excuse to take a little detour and revisit the last movie. Yeah, and it really is kind of, I mean, it, I don't think it's a movie that was widely seen, or I know it wasn't at the time, but... Uh, no, I forgot. But it does seem like a very seminal 70s movie in some ways, not, I mean, of course, it's the follow-up to Easy Rider, so that's that's a big deal in itself, but there's such a, there, such a legacy kind of around this film and so much mythology, mm -hmm. and it's, it's just one of those movies that seem to, like, I had a, a, a lot of awareness about it before I ever got the chance to see it. Well, yeah, yeah, it, it is. It really is part of a legacy of the new Hollywood, which kind of flourished right at the end of the 60s and kind of made some big inroads in the early 70s as, as these, you know, well, the Hollywood movie industry was in kind of this kind of desperate quandary. They just didn't know what to do next. They had all the big budget stuff, uh, you know, famously films like Dr. Doolittle turned into huge flops. They were trying to imitate like the sound of music and you know, Hello Dolly and stuff like that, but they just couldn't find the right formula. So they were really experimenting and giving a lot of creative control to 
artists like Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda, who were behind Easy Rider. Uh, Jack Nicholson had come up as an actor, and, and he had done some of his own stuff with Roger Corman. But all of a sudden, Easy Rider makes a boatload of money. I mean, the return on investment was just enormous, you know, because it just it just clicked with this huge audience of young viewers who were maybe in many ways tuning out of the movies, you know, for being so square and traditional, and they were more interested in, like, rock concerts and love-ins and protests and stuff like that. So Easy Rider gets them to go back into the theaters. And they're also interested in directors like Fellini and Bergman and, you know, and some of the more radical stuff that was going on. So I think Hollywood recognized if you want to get with the kids, you got to get young guys who are, you know, on that wavelength to make movies. And so Dennis Hopper got this enormous, you know, package of, of money and financing and creative control. And he was able to go far away from Hollywood. He went down to Peru, ultimately, even though they were going to start in Mexico, but they went even further south than that. And so, yeah, there's this incredible story. And, you know, of course, right here did the BBS uh, the box set, you know, kind of the you know, Hollywood Lost and Found, which has Easy Rider and, and a bunch of other films from that same era. The last movie really could have fit very nicely into that set, except it's kind of its own unique thing and was kind of a notorious flop after being one of the most hyped and publicized and eagerly anticipated movies of its time. There's all kinds of magazines. Uh, like I have, I have a copy right here of Life Magazine with Dennis Hopper in the on the cover. He's holding a football, and the headline says, "The Easy Rider Makes a Wild New Movie." And this is well before. This is from June of 1970. So this is a, almost like a full year before the movie had even been released, and it's getting front page of Life Magazine publicity. I mean, that's like, you know, you know, kind of network broadcast level of publicity. Uh, building anticipation because everybody's wondering what's going to come next. <laughs> and the last movie is what Dennis Hopper had to offer up. And um, it was just on, on a certain level an abysmal failure because the studio just wouldn't, wouldn't handle it. They didn't know what to make of it. We'll get into analyzing the movie, but I think there's a, this mythology, this legend behind it. And then Dennis Hopper himself is such an interesting character and, and personality and his career really is, is quite remarkable if you start looking at how it began, what happened in the middle, and then where it ended up. It's, it's just quite amazing altogether. Yeah, I dove very deeply into the world of Dennis Hopper in the last couple of weeks leading up to this show. And there's a lot of info out there about him. I think I watched a full four documentaries about Dennis Hopper, which was a lot. <laughs> And I watched a lot of his, or I watched four films that he had directed. I think he went on to do a total of seven or eight films that he directed. So yeah, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff about him online, and I dove really deeply into it. And I definitely found he was good company. He's uh, he's a very fascinating guy. Although at the end of it, I felt like, okay, I'm ready for I'm ready for a break from Dennis Hopper after this for sure he's... <laughs> enough's enough you know but good man I mean I appreciate you doing the homework I mean I'm maybe not as deeply versed in Dennis Hopper's career maybe in the kind of detail that you're talking about but uh, he is definitely a big personality and even the features that are on my copy of the last movie I've got the Arbello's Blu-ray that came out a couple of years ago um, you know they they paint a pretty 
interesting picture of a guy who had a lot of fascinating ideas, uh, great ambition, uh, excellent taste. I mean, I, I definitely can't fault him for the influences that he acknowledged openly. He wasn't trying to be, you know, secret or clever about it, but he really did bite off more than he could chew. I think, I think there's a, <laughs> there's a life lesson in all of this. Um, but at the same time, I can't really blame him. I mean, so much was, you know, literally going to his head, whether it was the, the money, the fame, you know, all the spoils of success and celebrity, the, you know, the drugs and, and the sex and everything else. I mean, he was just swimming in this overload of stimulation and probably it's reasonable to assume that it had a little bit of an effect on his ego and uh, maybe got a little bit off balance. Uh, but in the meantime, some, some fascinating art was created and a story was told. And I think that's what we're here to kind of, you know, sift through uh, the, the remains uh, and the, uh, you know, the ashes of what was left behind. And what I think you have to kind of consider all in all kind of a, a, a failure or an implosion, but a, but there's a lot of glory and beauty in it as well. Yeah, I agree. And it's hard to not see this film and see there, there's all of these questions kind of attached to it. Like what, what could his career have been if it wasn't for this film? Because it really was kind of a, an implosion of his career. And I do think it's overall a really good movie, but it's hard to not there's there's this bittersweet aspect to it and to Dennis Hopper and his whole career because although he went on to a lot of success and you know he he acted in over 200 films like i said i think he directed seven or eight features there's still always this feeling that something something wasn't fulfilled i i think especially you know as a director he had I think that was always a disappointment to him that he didn't go on to have more of a directing career after the huge success of Easy Rider, you know, that he had at a pretty young age. Uh, I was just going to ask, like, overall, what what are your feelings towards Dennis Hopper? I know you've shared mm-hmm. you've shared a little bit, um, but yeah. Uh, well, yeah, my my feelings towards Dennis Hopper is that he really is kind of a transitional figure. I mean. You know, he came up as a as a young actor. Um, he was in Rebel Without a Cause. He was in Giant. So two two kind of you know pivotal films with James Dean. He was more of a supporting character, of course. Um, and then he kind of came up and started kind of learning from people like James Dean and Montgomery Cliff, Marlon Brando. He, he cites them by name in some of the interviews. Um, I think Some Kind of Genius is the one that I'm thinking of on the, um, the last movie, Blu-ray. And so he, he kind of straddles that gap from golden age, you know, late golden age Hollywood, if you will. He was vigorous. He was virile. You know, he was charismatic. And he was right there ready to ride the wave of change as kind of the baby boomers and the youth revolts of the 60s uh, kind of got traction in the larger culture. Um, you know, he was, he was tuned in to sort of this, this new vibe that was coming down through the culture. And he was able to channel that energy into movies. I, I think he talked about some of the, you know, motorcycle films uh, that were kind of happening, the Roger Corman ethos of cheap, low budget, 
drive-in movie fair because it was a business. Kids all over the country were going to drive-in movies and they were there just to kind of, you know, hang out and socialize and have something playing up on the screen that was kind of, you know, exciting and stimulating in whatever way. It didn't have to be, you know, high drama. It didn't have to be real subtle cinema. In fact, probably subtlety and and nuance were, were wasted on that crowd. <laughs> you know, you're you're kind of only half attending to the movie. You, you might get the influence of something. You might be more interested in getting with your date or hanging out with the crew and, and having a good time and yucking it up. So monster movies, rowdy bikers, you know, buxom women. I mean, just all of that kind of stuff was was kind of the bill of fare. And so what what he was able to do was was straddle that with what was happening in, in artistic cinema. And he, he, you know, he talks about the Godards, the Fellinis, the Bergmans, you know, the, the serious cinema that's happening over in Europe and in some places in, in the United States, the Cassavetes, the underground uh, experimental cinema scene of the of that era. And, and he's taking all of those influences because he's, you know, he doesn't want to just be some dumb action star. He, you know, he's, he's intelligent, uh, he's creative, he's imaginative, and he wants to make art that connects with young people and, and you know, with people, you know, audiences in general. But he wants to do it in a way that takes advantage of the new freedoms and the opportunities and the expressive possibilities of cinema both as the, you know, the, the Hayes Code was, you know, wilting away. Um, you could get more candid. You could get more explicit. You could just get more, you know, real. And and so he, he had, I think, you know, his heart and mind were all in the right place of saying, let's let's kind of elevate, you know, this, this um, popular entertainment and, and bring people to sort of a higher state of, of awareness and, you know, cultural evolution and all of that. And so when he makes a film like Easy Rider, it's it's a very simple concept. You know, a couple guys are, you know, you know, peddling dope. They make some money. They head across the country. They're they're looking to get in touch with the real America. You know, and of course they're getting in touch with the the, the problems of America. You know, the racism, the war, the violence, the bigotry, all all of that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, that movie just strikes a nerve. Uh, it makes lots and lots and lots of money and really upends this whole, the whole studio system with executives who are saying, okay, we, we could have never made this movie ourselves, but you did. And you know what the young people are looking for. So <laughs> here's a million dollars, go out and do it again, you know? And so, you know, I think especially at the time of this film, Hopper is, you know, feeling both enormous um, pressure because, you know, you take that money, you have obligations now. Uh, but also, you know, he's probably feeling pretty full of himself. I mean, he is kind of like, you know, the, the young guy at play in a sense that he's got everything sort of catered up to him. He's with all the cool people, you know, and this movie is kind of a roster of, you know, hipsters of the time, you know, Michelle Phillips from the Mamas and the Papas, Peter Fonda's there, Chris Christopherson, and a bunch of others. Sam Fuller, I mean, another American independent director, uh, you know, he's got a pretty significant role. So there's a lot of really cool people that are part of this project, and he's got carte blanche. You know, he can just bring them all down. He can just shoot, 
you know, role after role after role of film. And, um, you know, he's got a veteran screenwriter along with him, the, the guy who actually worked on Rebel Without a Cause. So he's got, you know, some old Hollywood pros there. He's got Laszlo Kovacs as a cinematographer, creating beautiful images. They're down in Peru, this exotic landscape that's not really at all familiar territory to the vast majority of film goers or even around the world. I mean, how many movies do you know that are set in Peru, right? And, but it's very colorful and, and the geography and everything else out there is, is really unique. So he's got to be thinking, I'm on to something here. But as you see in the special features, he's, he is on to something all right, but it's, 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 it's more than he can really handle. You know, I was really struck by some of his, his allusions to, you know, like I say, Godard. And in the introduction to this film, he talks about, you know, he quotes Godard's statement about, you know, every film should have a beginning, middle, and end, though not necessarily in that order. And and uh, <laughs> and Hopper really literally takes him at his word and says, yeah, let's just go ahead and jumble this up. Yeah. And maybe he's doing it out of respect to the audience, but I think he just left a lot of people confused, you know, and, and then even the Fellini thing, you know, you know, let's face it, you know, Godard and Fellini had worked at their craft for quite a few years, uh, Fellini in particular, and he started back in the World War II era, you know. Uh, so you, you don't go from making Breathless to Weekend in, in two movies, right? You don't go from... Um, Ivitaloni or La Strada to Satyricon and you know you, you, there's a progression that that has to happen before you get into this extreme avant-garde where Hopper was I think trying to take his audience and also persuade the studios that this is the future of cinema I really felt like he was trying to create this new vanguard this new frontier for what cinema could be I just don't know that he really had the chops or the reputation uh, or the technical skill to to pull it off um, in a way that could persuade the audiences and most importantly, you know, on the technical side, the studio bosses to follow along. And that, that was his dilemma. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with you. I feel like we're left with sort of a beautiful mess of a film. It's it's definitely mm -hmm. I feel like you like you said it when that he bit off more than he could chew. Um, I did want to want to share a little bit about my story just because it ties yeah, for sure. it ties so much into this film, and I didn't really know that going in. But as a young person, I um, managed to get my hands on a pretty large quantity of of a substance that Albert Hoffman first synthesized back in the day. Okay. That was very, sure. very popular at this period of time, and I had some pretty life-changing kind of mind-blowing experiences with that stuff. And one, I can remember one uh, experience when my friend put on the dark side of the moon while mm. we were on that stuff. And I was watching like pink and, and purple and all these colors pouring out of the speaker while we were listening to money. And I kind of had this moment where I really, um, I, I had kind of one of those epiphany moments that you can have in those sorts sort of states where I I realized so much about what the 60s were and that this wasn't just about, you know, funky clothing and, um, you know... <laughs> Love beads. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So I, I developed a, a really strong connection to the kind of 60s counterculture, especially the music and the writing, not not as much the films until later. But eventually that took me to the uh, desert in 
Mexico, where I did a number of peyote ceremonies, and then eventually to Peru. And that was largely to do with the whole ayahuasca scene that's happening there now. But I spent about a year in Peru over two different trips, and seven months of that was within 50 kilometers of where this film was filmed. And so watching it, I could see several scenes that uh, where I had where I was certain that I had been to that spot, uh, and then a bunch of others. It was hard to not spend a lot of the film guessing. But I spent, yeah, about seven months in Cusco and in a, in a couple of towns around there. And this was shot about 30 kilometers from Cusco. So, yeah, I just ended up, it ended up uh, having this personal connection to it in a way. And you're right, I, I, there really is almost no film industry in Peru that I know of. I can't think of another sort of major feature film that's been shot there. I know that, you know, documentary crews go there from time to time. Uh, so it was really cool to see this culture uh, up on screen and and just so weird that it was in a Dennis Hopper movie <laughs> to be honest <laughs> yeah well and, and it is it's just it's just amazing that that they got the clearance to do that and of course Hopper was shaped by that experience I mean that's a big theme of this film when you sort of maybe watched a couple times and start kind of putting the pieces together you recognize he's talking about you know the corruption of innocence and and he sees you know he's portraying on screen and also reflecting on his lived experience in the course of making this movie, what happens when a bunch of, you know, somewhat decadent Westerners come down into this, not, not exactly a tribal native culture, but it's a pretty, you know, relatively innocent group of people, you know, people who are peaceful and in a diminutive in stature and really just living a very humble, simple life. You know, Peru is not a nation that even compared to like Brazil and Argentina, you know, in the same sort of uh, uh, geologic or geographic neighborhood, uh, those film, those, those countries uh, have a lot more of an international footprint. Peru just is kind of just there, you know, Uh, it's a tourist destination, but other than that, you get the feeling they kind of stick to themselves. So, you know, he's he's watching the impact of these of these uh, you know Hollywood partiers and rowdies coming down there, and and that's that's kind of a big key theme of the film is this priest who sort of sees what's happening to his congregation and is trying to sort of win them back, or at least biding his time until all of this hubbub dies down. The movie does what it does, and everybody you know packs up and leaves. And then they, they try to do some kind of restoration to get life back to normal. And uh, Kansas, the Dennis Hopper character, is kind of left behind after everybody else leaves because he's developed some attachments. He's got a kind of a romantic interest that's developed. I mean, again, these are <laughs> the story is just so nonlinear that it doesn't really make sense the first time through. But once you kind of take it in it a couple of times, you start weaving a, a at least the, the skeleton of a plot together to, because I think this was written in sequence. He just edited it up in such a way that things are just bouncing back and forth, um, especially, in, you know, well, really all throughout the film. Um, but yeah, that, that, that is fascinating that you've had that experience in Peru as well. And in some ways, you know, um, maybe not exactly walking the same path, but, but close enough, uh, even with a few decades in between. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and it's funny too because this part of Peru has become a place where they're now more used to seeing sort of long-haired hippie types <laughs> coming for <laughs> for different reasons, but it's it's a very conservative and religious um even even in Peru like in in the jungle it's it's a much more liberal kind of scene there, but uh, in the Andes, it's very it's very conservative. It's very sort of old fashioned. A lot of people are um, farmers or you know living um, through agriculture, and so it, I can only imagine it, what it must have been like back in the seventies when this <laughs> this troop of characters came through, and you know the stories that that we hear about Dennis Hopper being tailed by possibly you know the cia or something like that so yeah yeah it's it just seems like a really <laughs> unlikely place for this group of people and this story to be told but i do think it really works and i think you're right if there's one thing that i sort of could see about dennis hopper kind of diving into his his life i guess over the last couple of weeks is that he always wanted to be open to what was happening in the moment and he never wanted to um, – he always wanted the process to be as creative as possible. So if he's going to go to Peru, you know, Peru's going to affect the film that he makes because I know that originally this film was – I think you mentioned this earlier, but it, w- it was supposed to be taking place in Mexico where I guess the, the story goes that originally he heard some kind of anecdote about a stuntman down in Mexico – and after the um, after the film he was working on wrapped up, he decided to stay, and he fell in love with a woman. And he had he he was sort of trying to set up like a not really a studio, but something to to that effect where people could come down, and he would have all the equipment set up for them to film. And him doing this ended up having a big impact on you know the town and and the local culture like we see in this movie. And then basically there was the Mexican government said that for him to shoot it there, he would have to have a censor on set or for him to edit in that country. And he just wasn't, wasn't up for that in any way. So somebody told him if, you know, if you can't do Mexico, you should go to Peru. It's pretty much the same deal. And, uh, which is (laughs) not the case. Uh, well, and, and isn't that a little bit of kind of American arrogance? You know, oh, that's just where all those Spanish-speaking people live. You know, they're just, it's all kind of Indians and Hispanics all the way down the, the, the Tierra de Fuego. I, I mean, there is, there is a lot of hubris in, in all of this and, and even uh, the gender dynamics. I mean, there, there's so many elements of, uh, even for what was at the time, very progressive, radical, you know, you know, seem, you know, wanting to be egalitarian and, and all of that, but there's, there's still so much chauvinism and, you know, cockiness that that's all in the mix. I mean, the, the, the way women are objectified and, and uh, just the whole, you know, the, the sexual politics and just the plain old politics of it all. There's, there are definitely some parts of the film that maybe haven't exactly aged well, but they are, you know, signs of the times and, and it's just part of the fabric uh, that makes this movie such an interesting artifact. Yeah. I, I was wanting to get your take on that because, mm-hmm. you know, so far we've talked whenever people set up the, the outline of this film and, 
and you know they they talk about a lot of the stuff we've mentioned so far but it seems like for a large portion in the center we're basically following Dennett, Kansas and I can't remember that that really seedy guy that his kind of his right hand man the, the guy with the gold gold mine and all that yeah, yeah exactly yeah. um they're sort of escapades with these two women um mm-hmm. it, it seems like the like the the movie kind of just goes down a different route there for about like 35 40 minutes where that is sort of the main action up on the screen um so it's a pretty sizable chunk of the film that is dedicated to to this and as you mentioned, that's where we see some of these really kind of problematic gender relations playing out. Uh, wh- what did you think about that section of the film? Well, I think, again, it's, it's, it's got the elements, you know, there's some sexiness to it. There's some, you know, tension. Yeah, you, you, you got the young kind of, you know, um, spontaneous uh, rabble rousers, you know, the, the Hopper character and his sidekick versus the old businessman. And, you know, there's kind of the old middle-aged guy who's, you know, he's got the money and he's just there for kicks, but he's, you know, he's pretty much just an ignorant, drunken fool. Um, and so they're trying to figure out how to, you know, get the leverage of some of this, you know, some of this capital resources, you know, whether this, whether Kansas is really trying to get this, you know, gold mine enterprise off the ground, or if he's just kind of riding along with his buddy and kind of backing him up just because that's what, what friends do for each other. You know, it's, it's really hard to say. And again, the, the fragmentary nature of the script and the editing and everything kind of, you know, never really brings any of this to the full resolution, or at least that that's not how it's struck me. And then there's also the tension, the rivalries between um, his, his, uh, his Peruvian girlfriend who seems to want to kind of, kind of get him to settle down and to actually, you know, make this a serious relationship with the home and with, you know, material possessions. I mean, you know, she's, she's obviously a, a young woman with limited options. I mean, you know, to, to her, Kansas, this, this American guy with some money and with just this whole new life, he's kind of like a ticket out, you know, but, but she's already starting to make demands and he's like, you know, he just thought he's going to go down there and, and find himself some good time gals and, you know, kind of be the unquestioned, uh, you know, gringo in charge down there. And that's not exactly how things go for him either. And then there's this other older American woman who, you know, she's got the fur coat and, and there's all the tensions between those two. Uh, and where she finally kind of humiliates him because he's trying to do his best to, you know, kind of juggle both of these uh, dalliances uh, and, and save some face in the process. So, yeah, it's, it's a guy, again, both what's happening on screen and, and presumably what's kind of happening behind the scenes is a guy who's, you know, he's 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 got all these irons in the fire. He's got all these plates spinning, whatever <laughs> metaphor you want to use. But, it, it, you know, he finds himself pretty quickly getting overloaded because he thinks he's, he's got a handle on all of this and it, it really spins kind of out of control, you know? And so you, you sort of see him in his breakdown and that's kind of, I guess the climactic scenes of the film is where he thinks he's dying and all that. So, I mean, to me, um, <laughs> 
yeah, it's, it's hard for me to say, well, boy, they should have, they should have improved the movie by doing this or that, you know, it would be interesting. And I, I think even one of the supplements talked about would it ever have been possible to do a, a more traditional cut, you know, just really tell the story a little bit more in sequence. Maybe it's a little bit more straightforward and comprehensible, but I think at that point when they even had access to the materials and the possibility of doing that, Hopper was like, nah, that ship has already sailed. I got too many other things I can do now. It is what it is, which I think is probably, you know, ultimately the right decision, but it would still have been interesting to see if, if we could have maybe read the screenplay as it was originally written and even maybe a fan edit or something like that, that, that might have had some kind of an effect, but I don't know. Ultimately I just sort of see all of those moments, you know, the problematic and the awkward and the cringy stuff, as well as the stuff that's kind of amazing and cool and visionary. It's just, it's just the, you know, the, the fabric and the texture of, of the times and of this really unique, uh, irreproducible experience that, that he and his crew were having down there. But I, again, this is so much about Dennis Hopper and his, you know, his visions, his impressions, his expressions, and what he's trying to do here, um, all of that creative control resting in the hands of one guy who's just a little bit <laughs> off his rocker, uh, but is doing the best he can to make something, you know, that that gets his message out there to the world. Yeah, that I, I think I mentioned earlier that there there is this sort of question of what could have been that seems to be raised again and again when you're looking at documentaries about the making of this film. And, you know, there's um, Stuart Stern, I believe, is the writer who said mm-hmm. that he basically had to force Dennis to even bring a script with him to Peru that he didn't want right. to. <laughs> you know, he had hired this guy to write a script, which people people say it's an an amazing script and i agree it would be really interesting to be able to read a copy of it but i don't think that's possible um it might be out there online somewhere i mean if you really want to go digging it's probably not like locked away it's just you're not going to buy it off of a you know a script off amazon.com or something like that yeah yeah well and in that documentary that that they put up on the criterion channel along with this his kind of right hand or dennis hopper's kind of right hand man satya shows a copy of the script for the last movie mm-hmm. so it does exist but it was in like a closet full of papers um but and and then you have sort of the the sound editor who's saying, you know, that there was a straightforward cut and it was a really nice little movie. And, you know, there's a lot of stories about um, people like Yodorowsky were sort of influencing mm-hmm. um, a, a lot of the mythology around this movie comes from the editing process, which took a very long time. Um, I think over a year for him to edit. And, uh, and so there was, there was lots of different cuts of it. Um, and it, yeah, and, and pressure from the studio to saying, give us this movie. Like, we, we need our money back. You know, I can only imagine. Can you can, just think about how tense and angry some of those conversations had to have been when, you know, Universal shelled out this money. They they probably give, I mean, and, and probably giving that artistic control, that in itself must have been a debate, at least within some quarters. Like, studios going that far out on a limb with this guy who admittedly had huge success, but you know, Dennis Hopper was a pretty notorious party hound 
not that Hollywood was, you know, completely pure of that kind of thing, but I'm, I'm sure there were probably some, some old studio bosses who just thought, what are we doing? You know, these guys are, are getting away with murder here. And so you've got a year's worth of editing, a final cut given to a director on his second film. Um, you know, there's all, all this room for second guessing and I told you so and backbiting and all of that. And then, you know, after this year of editing and all the pressure that the studio, I'm sure, has been dumping on Hopper and his circle to say, show us the video, show us the movie. Um, you know, even though he had won an award at Venice, uh, at the Venice Film Festival, the Critics Award, um, I'm sure that there were a lot of people within the studio that says, you've got to be kidding me. This is what we're getting. <laughs> and uh, it, it's not a film that played well with, with preview audiences. Uh, and, you know, while there may have been, well, there were certainly some champions and supporters, people who were maybe closer to Hopper's wavelength and were versed enough in, you know, art house cinema and, you know, all of that to say, yeah, I'm, I'm here for it. I'm along for the ride. Show me where you're going, Dennis. This is cool. But that's a very select company. <laughs> it really is. Whereas a lot of people, you know, you could just have even, even, you know, rednecks and local yokels or average suburbanites can relate to easy rider. Yeah. Get on your motorcycle and fire up the Steppenwolf and let's just cross the country. Right. I mean, that's a pretty straightforward, um, you know, coast to coast and and you know it winds up in a massacre but we we get it you know this here is just you know there's moments but it it's it's just the way it's assembled uh it doesn't it doesn't invite the viewer in you've got to work for it and i mean uh, yeah i just i just you know wrote a letterbox for you today it says i won't recommend the movie as a standalone thing you don't just pop this in and say, hey, let's just watch the last movie. You know, you, you got to understand kind of where it came from, how it got to be the way it is and what it meant for the whole thing to make any kind of sense. That's at least my view of it. Yeah. And I think that it's it's a two watch minimum to even oh, sort yeah. of start putting together what happens on screen, even if you've like when I watched it the first time I had read a lot and listened to a lot and I still the first time through. I didn't really have much clue what was going on. I didn't mind because I found it very watchable and very beautiful, but it was more with the second watch that I I started to see what was happening because, like you said, the the structure is is pretty complicated to follow. And I, I don't think it's even just that. I mean, it's a hard film to find a way into, like, emotionally. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Well, yeah, who do you identify with? I mean, do you, if you identify with the Dennis Hopper character and you can sort of get on, on his level and sort of see this whole scene through his eyes, then it starts to kind of come together. But he's a unique cat. I mean, he's cool and he's influential. And, you know, he's got, like I say, he's got the charisma. He's got a good look to him. Uh, he can be funny, he can be emotional, but it's it's just a very different type of experience. Again, you don't really know the locale. What is this Peruvian culture? I mean, especially back in 70, 71, it's not like Peru was never heard of, but it just, 
you're just not used to seeing it. So is this a Western? Well, I guess kind of. There's lots of horses and animals around and, and it, you know, it's kind of low technology. But then there's this whole movie making meta thing going on with Sam Fuller calling out shots and stuntmen falling off of roofs and crashing into, you know, uh, structures and people shooting each other. But why? Why are they shooting? <laughs> who, who, is this real? Are they really shooting each other? Or is this just, I mean, you, you can figure it out, but it's just kind of, it just comes at you with this kind of, uh, you know, randomness, this kind of kaleidoscope. And you, but you're right, the, the visual beauty, I mean, the, the music, you know, again, me and Bobby McGee, that's what, that, that song, that great anthem of the early 70s, kind of came from this movie. Of course, it was popularized by Janis Joplin and Grateful Dead made many cover versions of it and all of that. So, so it's a song that certainly outgrew and, and, and was not hampered by the lack of success of this movie, but this is where it kind of first came from, you know? So you've got some really interesting bits here, but um, yeah, it, 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 he's certainly not spoon feeding the audience. He's, he's not catering. And, and, and so to his credit, I think he's giving, uh, his viewers some challenging material stuff you can sort of sink your teeth into and 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 rise rise up to meet it you know I, I i do i enjoy movies like that i enjoy movies that take two or sometimes even three viewings to really grasp you know the artistry and the concepts behind it but um that, you know again that's 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 catering to a pretty small slice of the audience a lot of people just want to sit down whether they want to watch it straight or under the influence or whatever, which I'm sure was probably a pretty major thing back in, at this time, a head trip movie or whatever. Um, even then, I'm not sure what you're going to get out of it other than some of the, you know, a little more hallucinatory type of scenes, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, the passionate lovemaking under the waterfall and you know, the party sequences and, and some of that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's just, it's just a lot to take in for sure. Yeah, I, I think those party sequences are the only time that I got really like a good times kind of groovy vibe like like <laughs> you get quite a bit of in, in Easy Rider. This this definitely feels like much more of a new Hollywood kind of downer film yeah. than that one. So it's it's hard to it's hard to connect with emotionally, I found. And uh, like you say, I mean, we can sort of identify with um, with our protagonist, but he's not he's not a great guy. <laughs> um, you know, he, we see him do right. some, some pretty nasty things. Um, and also, I, I even once I really got more of a handle on the events and what was going on and what he was doing with structure and... Um, all the ideas that are in the film, which there are lots of, I think that my my main sort of reservation is that it to me it sort of it feels like a like this was there's an hour missing you know, something like that because a, a lot of these ideas feel like they could be fleshed out a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. Like you say, there's not a lot of resolution, which I don't require of of a movie, but it just felt like there was more to be explored. Yeah. Well, and didn't he? Well, he had like 48 hours or some ridiculous number of raw footage, and his initial rough cut was like in the three and a half hour neighborhood. I mean, it would have been really nice if that had been preserved in some way, you know, because I think that really could have been the ultimate, you know, uh, version of the last movie. But 
you know, with, with everything I've already recounted with all the studio pressures and the objections and the, you know, some desire to make that money back, um, you know, he recognized dropping a three and a half hour, <laughs> you know, uh, brick on, on his audience just is not going to work, uh, even just for box office, right? Um, and so he whittled it down and, and, you know, he made the movie that he wanted and he stood behind it. Uh, but you're right, all of all the influences of Jodorowsky and, and others who kind of came out to uh, Hopper's rancho or his homestead in Taos, New Mexico, probably, you know, it's, it's like one of those, you know, paintings. I used to do a little bit of oil painting and acrylics and stuff like that. And there's a point at which you sort of just got to stop, you know, you keep dabbling and, and mixing colors or throwing new stuff on top. You've lost it. You've buried it. It's gunked up. And again, I'm not saying this movie is flat out bad. I think it's just, it's, it's perhaps a little bit overcooked or it's just on this, it's on this kind of level that um, is always going to limit its accessibility to audiences. And so, you know, you, you take it for what it is, but I think you know, that's maybe where, um, some of his grandiosity got the better of him because you know, he's 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 really shooting for the stars here, and it's like how about just reaching a cruising altitude and then you know continuing to make more movies and refining your art that way. It seemed like he was going for a, an ultimate magnum opus, career achievement type of film uh, on his second effort, and it's just you know. Pace yourself, man. <laughs> I guess that'd be my retroactive advice for all that sort. Yeah, it, it does. It does feel like that, and it does kind of have that reputation, almost like a Apocalypse Now or something. There seems to be mm-hmm. a lot of parallels with that movie. But you're right. This is his second movie. You know, he doesn't have a ton of experience. He also doesn't really have that much money. I mean, Al- right. Alex Cox talks about that. Alex Cox seemed to be pretty i don't know if he was involved with the restoration of this i know that he brought it once it was restored to to some film festivals um but you know he says that the dennis hopper was really kind of screwed by the by the studio because with the the amount of money the amount of money he made off of easy rider he should have been offered like five million and i think that I th- Alex Cox in one interview I read with him he put out the number 850,000 but I think okay. that the budget came in closer to a million. Um so it you know I do think that he was shooting for the stars. I don't think he had the finances to to totally do everything that he wanted to do and you're right I don't think he really had the skills um and and also it just sounds like the lifestyle that he was living and Taos was <laughs> yes. not very focused. <laughs> right. And I mean, and even in Peru, you know, I mean, well, did you have a chance to watch the, uh, the, the interview that he did with Dick Cavett uh, as one of the supplements on the Blu-ray? I sure did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he comes in, I, I'm on this moment to moment reality level. <laughs> I mean, I have to find excuses to use that line. You're like, yeah, Dick Cavett's like, what is this moment to moment reality level? And then Hopper's like, Oh, and I say, hi, you say hi. And I say, whoa, it's like, whoa. And Ben Cavett's like, well, I guess I've been doing that all my life. <laughs> but it's just, I mean, you know, he's he's clearly vibing. He's buzzing on something or other. I'm not sure. But, you know, 
I'm not sure when he ever really sobered up at all during that time. I mean, there was always something in the air, something in his system. And it was the entire milieu, the, the society, the, the people he hung out with. And, you know, it was just considered sort of a way of, of kind of reaching that next level of artistic expression and freedom. So, you know, you, you take it for what it's worth, the, the, the bad, the good, the, the creative possibilities and the, uh, and the wanky self-indulgence. <laughs> They're kind of side by side with each other, right? Yeah, I, I think this was the sort of stage in Dennis Hopper's life where he was open to the full pharmacy of, of mm-hmm. chemicals, oh, yeah. whereas later on he sort of settled into like really extreme alcoholism and, and mm-hmm. cocaine use before he eventually got sober. Um, in, in one interview, he said that at the height, it was like two liters of rum a day. Um, was was what he was yeah. drinking, but I did in that interview that you mentioned. I thought that was actually a really interesting interview because at the beginning it is just like you say. He kind of he seems to really be playing up the kind of like stoned hippie persona, um, and then and he throws some barbs at at people by saying sort of like, uh, "Isn't it pathetic how we're all here trying to sell something?" Um, I, I think we're talking about the same interview. Um, yeah. But then, and and you see you see the people kind of turn on him. Um, and then I found like they were really kind of trying to just turn him into a bit of a clown um, throughout that interview. And by the end, he just seemed really sad to me when he was talking about the the reception of his film. Um, mm-hmm. So. It, it was it was like a roller coaster ride in itself just watching that interview because uh by the end it, it just he just seemed so bummed out about you know what was happening with his film and uh the fact that people weren't really getting a chance to see it and i i, I did want to make this point earlier when we were talking about that 3 hour cut is even though he did like you said he he got he had director's cut so it's not like a magnificent amberson situation where it's like we'll never see it because the studio butchered it and and dumped the footage into the water but i do think that dennis wanted his film to be seen and he knew that even with all of the creative control that he had that he didn't really have any control over distribution um and so he wanted right. it to be seen, and when it didn't perform, they just—I think—they just pulled it out of theaters really quickly. And I think they actually were almost more like even punitive. It wasn't like let's give it a go and see what happens. They, they was like, no, we're going to do one week in L.A., one week in New York, three days in San Francisco, and then we're going to shelve it, and that's going to be your consequence for screwing us over. I mean, I, I really, you know, I—I I mean, I wasn't there, but that's really the—the—that's the, kind of the. the vibe that I get is that there was kind of almost a retaliation against him. Uh, they were not even going to give it a chance to succeed. They'd already written it off as a loss. They probably had the accountant say, you know, <laughs> how can we turn this to our tax advantage, you know? Um, and, um, and even the fact that it won the Venice Critics Award, I think was seen as sort of a backhanded slap against Hollywood. Like, oh, there's those European art house guys. Um, it's like uh, Brazil, maybe to shoot forward in history, where Brazil was was really, you know, deep six by the studios, or at least they tried to. 
they made it a, an actual crime to show that film here in the you know the United States after it had, had won some awards and had some previews, but they just didn't like where Terry Gilliam took that story. And of course, the studio did butcher that. They did the infamous Love Conquers All version. But it's like, I think there are times when a, a sort of a creative visionary voice, when they go too far, and especially if it doesn't have, you know, slam bang commercial potential, uh, the reactionary forces within the film industry will try to make a negative example out of somebody like Dennis Hopper. Like, not only are we going to shelve your movie, we're going to make sure you don't even get movie work and you forget directing you're not even going to be acting on on the big screen for the rest of this decade and Hopper, you know definitely was wounded by that he did television he was able to get a paycheck but you know he was really rebuked and that had to feel personal to him like it wasn't just like hey i got carried away i'm sorry i'll never do it again i'll be good now uh no they they kind of kept him under the thumb and I'm, I'm sure that had to just be a completely life-changing uh, experience for him, especially when he thought he was on this completely different trajectory, which probably explains also the dependence on alcohol and cocaine and, and just that kind of, you know, deep depression that uh, he, he apparently fell into, uh, even though he was continuing to do some work. It's just... You know, he, that gets into this very lonely, subjective territory about you know, his journey through life and how he just had to recalibrate and, um, you know, find a way forward, although it took him years and years to do that. Yeah, and I think that, honestly, this legacy kind of lives on to this day because one of the films that I did watch uh, in the last couple of weeks was, it's called Out of the Blue, which is his follow-up as a director to this film. Um, made right. in made in 1980, which is uh, I think that one is just phenomenal. Like it's, it, I think I would probably. It's hard to say, but I might prefer it to Easy Rider. It's just a, a mm-hmm. really great film, and I had to watch it. I happen to have like an old beat up DVD version of it, but there's no way to see it streaming. Um, it's it's been restored. There's no Blu-ray yet. They did a Kickstarter. Uh, after Dennis died and raised thirty grand, and I read that one of the the members from Yes actually put up ten grand to mm. to get a physical copy of that out there. But uh, like it, it's just weird to me that that it's impossible to see this movie um, that he, that it was made ten years after the last movie, and and it really is a phenomenal film. Um, and then, you know, he didn't go on to direct anything else until 1990, um, after that. So yeah, it's, uh, he, yeah, they, they really kind of, they didn't kill his career, but, uh, yeah, it it was greatly affected by kind of the, the aftermath of the last movie. Yeah, yeah, his his years of youth. I mean, by the time you start seeing him, you know, showing up in like David Lynch movies, he's kind of into middle age now, you know, so like there's this huge gap. I mean, if I guess if you're a really hardcore Dennis Hopper fan, you can try to find a, a record of all his TV guest appearances. But you know, even that's going to just be, you know, bit roles and one offs and things of that sort. So, yeah, I, I, it, it's got to be really devastating. I, you know, it'd be almost like a uh, an injury or a, or a you know a, a, a relationship you know fiasco that really just kind of takes the wind out of your sails and you're just 
just putting a lot of time and energy just to kind of regroup and regather and, and pick up where you left off, knowing that if it weren't for some of these, you know, twists of fate, you know, life could have been a whole lot different and maybe a lot more satisfying. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely some pathos that I feel for him, even though at the same time, you know, yeah, he, he kind of, it's kind of like um, one of those Daedalus things, you know, he flew a little too close to the sun, you know, and came crashing down. And on that note, we are just about at the end of the show here. We've got about yeah. 50 seconds left. Um, did you have any closing thoughts you wanted to, to share before we wrap things up? Well, yeah, I, I, again, I feel maybe we just kind of scratched the surface, but I thought we've had a great conversation. If you want to find my stuff, if you want to know about my podcast, I'm on CriterionCast.com. That's pretty much just how it sounds is how it's spelled. So CriterionCast.com, Criterion Reflections is my podcast, and I definitely hope people want to check it out and see what I've got going on over there. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show, David. It's been a real pleasure for me. Me too, Dallas. Thanks a lot. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation between me and Alexander as we discussed the last movie. Uh, let's go ahead and transition now into the final portion of this 100th episode as I just kind of, uh, you know, try to reel it back a little bit and get a uh, perspective on where I'm at with my podcast and maybe what I want to accomplish with it going forward. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I've been doing this for, you know, well, depending on how you want to count it, uh, 13 years, if you think I started back in 2008, uh, maybe you know 12 years if I kind of count 2009 and the chronological sequence is kind of the initiation of my real journey. Uh, even as a podcaster, I started that in 2010 when uh, Rob Nishimura and I did the Eclipse Viewer, uh, the first, I think, seven, eight episodes, yeah, eight episodes, I think it was because episode eight and a half was kind of my transition to having Trevor Barrett join as a co-host there. So, And then I, I think I'd been on the Criterion cast main episodes maybe a couple times uh, prior to starting the Eclipse Viewer. So, yeah, um, I'm, a, I'm a veteran at podcasting. Uh, you know, whether or not, uh, or the significance of all that, I guess that's really, you know, somebody else's job to 
figure that. Um, you know, I have not pursued commercial distribution or anything of a, you know the sort that would ever generate like income <laughs> or or uh, even try to do things that would um, maybe maximize the following. I mean, let's just start with the basic conceit here, which is uh, covering all the Criterion Collection films in chronological order. That has, you know, in many ways been a, a great angle, if you will, uh, kind of a unique basis for a podcast. I'm not aware of anybody else who does that. Uh, there are some who, you know, focus on particular directors or genres, or they just, you know, they, there's obviously lots and lots of criterion podcasts out there where people choose films in maybe a more random order which definitely has the advantage of saying, what do I want to talk about now? Or what's hot? What's popular? Uh, what's more likely to generate listens? Uh, because it's a, a new release or it's kind of a, a legendary film with lots of you know interest uh, versus this obscure little genre nugget that came up on the Criterion channel. Uh, a month or two ago, and it's going to be leaving again in a few more weeks. <laughs> uh, you know, and and also just sort of being uh, locked into a particular timeline, so that you know all of the movies that I talk about are from a particular year um, for you know quite a few episodes in a row. So that means a lot of other interesting stuff that I could be watching and talking about won't be you know won't be gotten around to for a long time. So there's a downside to that, but whatever, that's fine with me. I mean, I, I really happen to enjoy the early 70s as a as an era. Those were very formative years for me. And so I have a lot of associations from my childhood um, growing up in that time and going through different changes of life, remembering some of the history and just the atmosphere the sensibilities, the pop culture vibes, um, what I remember hearing in the news or people talking about. Um, and of course, you know, the early 70s when I started coming into my own as far as just being aware of what's going on in the world and starting to develop my own sense of taste and preferences. Uh, what did I find amusing and interesting? And I, I will admit not a lot of the movies that I'm talking about these days are movies that I saw way back when, with a few exceptions. Um, I mean, I wasn't going to the theater all the time, and the stuff that I remember seeing from the early 70s is like you know, Planet of the Apes and stuff like that. Um, you know, Disney movies, you know, bed knobs and broomsticks or that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, things that I'll probably never talk about, oh, you know, with the exception of maybe some early 70s sci-fi, things of that sort. But anyways, it's still very much an era that's in my wheelhouse, and that would conceivably continue through all the 70s. Um, the 80s, you know, I'm not nearly as fond of that decade as a lot of people are. Um, and I also, I got married in 1984, started raising children in the 85. Our first child was born that year and uh, then we had twins a couple years later so my memories of the 80s are just a lot more about the busyness of life and 
just kind of going through a pretty dramatic uh, shift from the punk rock culture of the San Francisco Bay Area, where I was at for the first few years of the 80s. And then I really kind of cleaned up my act and got married and, you know, moved back to Michigan and just kind of started the life that I'm kind of still living right now. That's that's a little bit of biography, I suppose, there. But in any case, um, you know, years later, after all my kids had kind of grown up and gotten out of the house or were very soon to, you know, move on to that phase of young adult life, that's when I started, um, you know, getting into cinema and, and kind of taking a, a pretty deep look at it as an art form. And that's really ultimately what led to me blogging, and then podcasting about it because I really began to feel like these films kind of have something unique to offer and because they are accessible on home video now that you can just get a disc, pop it in and watch almost whatever you want whenever you want to um, and you can do that in the privacy of your own of your own living room, rec room, um, even watch the movie on a device, if you will, a phone or a computer, a tablet, uh, if you've got the right uh, software to do that, that brings cinema into this much more intimate space where it doesn't require purchasing a ticket sitting in an auditorium or a theater and watching it with a bunch of people at a prescribed time. I mean, there's still a lot to be said about that experience. And, um, you know, obviously going to the theater has been a much more of a rare privilege in the past year plus now. I've been to the theater a couple times and look forward to doing that more, and I'll probably appreciate it even more. But um, at the same time, I don't live in a big metropolis where all of the kind of films that the Criterion Collection has you know, specialized in now for several decades uh, I can't just, you know, go down the street like I could if I lived in Los Angeles or New York or, you know, probably Paris or London or some other, you know, Chicago. You know, even even once the pandemic has passed, uh, I won't have that kind of access. But the ability to pull a disc off a shelf, just like one would pull a book out of a personal collection, uh, that's that's a great privilege. And so blogging and podcasting to me felt like a way of making that experience more substantial. Like I'm not just reading it or viewing it and taking it in on sort of a purely personal aesthetic appreciation because I enjoy the art by writing about it and by talking about it with other people in the podcast format. Uh, I'm putting a bit of a, a record down. I'm you know, sort of commemorating the experience that I had of engaging with this art and leaving something behind that I hope would be of interest and benefit to somebody else who will have the opportunity to engage with that art or who already has and wants to just hear my thoughts about it. Yeah, to me, there there's meaning and there's value in that. And so the podcast is a way of sharing and connecting with people uh, who are out there <laughs> and who are as driven as I am to say, tell me more about this movie. And, you know, hopefully the um, 
the, the track record that I've been able to produce and the quality of the dialogue that I've had with my guests has proven to be sufficiently worthy of people's attention. Uh, again, whether that's an audience of dozens or hundreds or thousands, I don't know that it goes any higher than that. Uh, I don't think I've had an episode that's reached a 10,000 download or listen you know, threshold. That's okay. You know, um, I really am not out to um, garner massive popularity downloads or, you know, <laughs> uh, cash, you know, um, any money that, I, that this, pro- this show has produced over the years has gone right to Criterion Cast. And, and, uh, you know, I will say that I've received some review items and Ryan's been pretty good to us on the crew to occasionally advance us, you know, little stipends out of some of the surplus uh, from our supporters. And, and that's super appreciated, but I really have not presumed to ask or require a whole lot of that type of thing because I'm, I'm doing fine financially and uh, definitely like just keeping the site active and supported and definitely don't have any, you know, reservations about Ryan, uh, you know, getting, a fair portion of that support because he puts a lot of work and effort into maintaining the site. And so good on him. He's also raising a, a beautiful little daughter. So, uh, you know, I, I have no idea what he clears. So, you know, I've just kind of left all of that stuff outside of the scope of my awareness. And I think it's better for me that way. But in any case, um, what I also don't know is, you know, how much, you know, uh, recognition my podcast has gotten, um, other than the immediate feedback I get from people who either a want to be on the show, which is to me the ultimate validation. And man, I am just so delighted when I think about the guests who have decided to, to join me on that. Uh, but also people who just like to listen and, uh, give me a like or a positive comment. Um, you know, even, you know, share a link on their own social media. Um, just knowing that there's a handful of people out there who uh, are at least somewhat into it to the, the level that I am, that's, that really feels great. And um, so, yeah, it, it, it is meaningful to me just to know that uh, in this vast, you know, almost infinite world of, of personalities and imaginations and minds and egos, there's a little cluster of humanity that says, hey, I kind of dig what Dave Blakesley is doing over there. So <laughs> I hope that doesn't sound too grandiose. But, uh, you know, that's, that's to me, it's a great outlet. You know, I, I work in the nonprofit sector. Um, I'm an administrator in social services uh, primarily working with mental and behavioral health, uh, people who have had a very difficult time in life for lots of different reasons, but a lot of it related to abuse, trauma, neglect, addiction, poverty. Uh, I'll also add like racial discrimination, uh, gender discrimination, just all kinds of obstacles, uh, many of which I have not had to deal with on a personal level. 
uh, a few of which I'm familiar with through my experience and can relate to, and that's what got me into this work in the first place. So, uh, as you can imagine, that's a work that you know definitely sometimes takes its toll on a person's energy and even you know one's own mental health. You know, when you're spending a lot of time with people who are not well emotionally, mentally, uh, physically. Uh, you know, if you're empathetic to any degree, you sort of start identifying with those folks and, and it has a, a way of draining some of one's energy. And um, not in a bad way. I'm not necessarily criticizing the work. I'm just saying, you know, it's just kind of a residual cost or effect of doing that work that one has to take into account. So even though I don't work in the... Uh, entertainment industry. I'm not a professional critic or writer or any of that type of thing. Um, just being part of this discipline, if you will, of, of, of criticism and analysis of culture and uh, looking at it from a little bit of a historical perspective, but also applying things like sociology and psychology and philosophy and stuff I think I've mentioned in my little introduction a while back. Um, yeah, those are all really helpful lenses to understand what a film is trying to accomplish. And maybe even, you know, if, if the directors or other talents involved in making the film haven't set out with an objective to, you know, connect with audiences on this, you know, deeper or more profound level, even if they're... Uh, intention is really just to amuse, shock, uh, divert, um, you know, even even <laughs> what you might call sort of predatory. Uh, you know, I'm making this money because I know there's an audience out there that will, <laughs> I'm making this money, I'm making this movie because I know there's an audience that's out there that will pay good money to see this depiction of whatever it is up on the screen. Uh, whether that's, you know, the classic exploitation type of cinema or, you know, even, I mean, I definitely don't put it past directors who touch on profound themes, you know, the Ingmar Bergmans or the Ozus or the Kurosawas, uh, you know, the people who, who make weighty, substantial films, they also do it because there's an entertainment value in that, there's an audience, there's a market that they're appealing to, and they want to connect with those folks because those people spend money and can make you rich just like people who uh, uh, are drawn to maybe more lowbrow type of affair. And so, you know, the Criterion Collection being this kind of eclectic brand that gathers all types of important films together... Uh, is a is a wonderful platform for just kind of contemplating life and humanity uh, again through certain lenses and through the art of film which is of course a, a compilation of, of arts uh, writing acting music cinematography set design uh, editing is a very important skill, obviously. And, and, and maybe I'm being so basic here. I don't know. I don't want to be ponderous or, you know, beating you know, the proverbial dead horse here. But I just really think it's it's cool to call attention to those very simple elements and things that might be 
easy to take for granted when you sit down to watch a film, whether it's sitting on your sofa at home, sitting in the theater, or like I said earlier, watching the movie on the go in some kind of a device or in some kind of a non-traditional setting, you know, sitting on the beach or <laughs> driving in your car or, um, you know, just kind of encountering a film in a way in a place that wasn't possible even, you know, several years ago uh, and letting that film kind of connect with your mind and your body wherever you may be. And then from that point, you go forward, you know, with some kind of an effect, right? I think, you, you know, you watch the movie, you take it in. Um, what does it do for you? What does it do to you? And how do does your response to the film affect other people? Does it make you a wiser person, a kinder person, uh, a more understanding or generous or constructively engaged person? Does it lead you into feelings of despair and dejection over the futility of human efforts or the foolishness of, of, of so many people who seem to be getting life wrong or not doing so well, at least by the standards that we might evaluate them? And is there anything about our own standards that needs to be reevaluated? You know, is our sense of the good life, you know, really accurate? Is it valid? Is it something that uh, we have the right to project onto other people uh, who might be living life on a different by a different set of rules or a different set of priorities? Uh, yeah, I, I love the complication of all of that, or the the uh, the um, disruptiveness. Uh, in some ways where a lot of our presumptions are called into question and are at least put up for review, even if we end up, as I often do, you know, validating my values and my priorities because a film either confirms it because it's coming from a similar compatible perspective or sometimes I see films that come from an opposing perspective where they they embrace values or priorities that don't seem that important to me. And I listen to the case that they're making, again, whether that's actively didactic and authoritative or whether it's just by more by like inference and implication. Uh, but there are definitely times where I watch a movie that's got a message and I decide at the end, you know what, I don't agree with that. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, or it might be interesting, it might be um, artistically rendered, but that's not really how I want to live. And, um, you know, I'm okay with letting you do you, uh, generically speaking, but I will stay on the same path that I've been on. Yeah, I mean, it's just all those little subtleties and all those dynamics um, are kind of in the background, at least, and sometimes in my podcasts and my conversations, they maybe come a little bit more to the foreground and come into a little bit sharper focus as we kind of uh, <clears throat> address the existential um, aspects or um, leadings that a film might be making or a performer is making or a script writer, whoever, you know, the... Uh, 
the, the driving talent behind a particular editorial bit of content uh, is concerned. Uh, is this getting word salady here? Am I rambling on? I don't know. I, I hope, you know, this is worthwhile. Um, I also just want to talk a little bit maybe about the um, the future of my podcast. Um, I have been thinking about what can I do to increase the pace of things a little bit. I mean, I've been talking about this for, or thinking about this ever since I started. I mean, in, in the first season of my podcast, I would pick like a season of the year and I would do an episode that would cover, you know, sometimes three, four, five, maybe even six movies. I'm not sure what the biggest single compendium episode I ever did was. We also do these year-end things where I talk about a bunch of short films. So sometimes I've crammed lots of titles into those. But I, I sometimes felt that that would either make the episode way too long. Like, you know, I think there's like some three and a half hour episodes out there from the first season uh, because I would have all these films scheduled and that's just that's just too much, you know, to download one podcast and expect the listener's going to spend the next three hours listen, you know, checking that out. Um, you know, I, that, that seemed a bit presumptuous. I know there are podcasts out there that, that will routinely go like two two hours plus um, and they also throw in lots of extra extraneous things like what's happening in theaters nowadays or what new releases are coming out or you know Oscar buzz or things of that sort um, I do like the fact that my podcast tends to just focus on you know other than introductions and who's on the show let's just get right to the main event and leave it at that so occasionally I depart from that a little bit but for the most part, yeah, that's what I do. It's just the movie, and that's what you get with a lot of other, without a lot of other, you know, sideshows or uh, distractions. <clears throat> um, but anyway, so I, then I made the decision starting in season two to just do one film per episode. Again, with a few exceptions, sometimes I've doubled or even triple featured things because of the Criterion channel, or maybe there's a couple films that are kind of related to each other, uh, like the less blank thing I just did. Um, you know, they're released pretty close together. So, you know, but generally each, each episode kind of has its own particular focal area, focal point, um, that's helped as far as the, you know, making the episodes themselves a little bit more manageable, but it still takes a while. You know, I, one of the reasons I got into podcasts, I thought I could just kind of whip these off cover a lot more films, you know, writing started to feel a lot more laborious to me. And I wasn't really sure if my reviews were really, you know, engaging with people in the same way. And I, I do like podcasting better than written reviews at this point, uh, because podcasts um, feed me ideas from my guests, whether it's a single guest or a, a panel, and that stimulates new thoughts and kind of, to me, makes a much better episode than certainly me just sharing my take on it even though I think I have a good take it's just one person's idea and you know podcasting just seems to give a lot more spontaneity and variety and I just like sort of the freewheeling nature of just jumping on the horse and riding I don't use a lot of um, show notes I don't follow talking points or outlines um, these conversations just like what I'm doing right now is all completely extraneous I don't have a list or a a uh, kind of a digest of the things I'm going to say. It's all in my head, and then it comes out. <laughs> um, 
so yeah so there's just a little bit i'm gonna pause now and maybe i'll come back with some concluding thoughts right after this I took that little break there I kind of alluded to the future of my podcast and no I'm not making any kind of big announcements today uh, I don't have anything quite that figured out uh, and I'm definitely committed to uh, finishing 1972 because I think for the most part the films in this year that are on my schedule are all pretty great but I am kind of considering being a little bit more judicious maybe intentionally skipping some movies uh, or maybe returning to some short take combo reviews as we go forward and there are a number of titles that have made it onto my list that are no longer available on the criterion channel and i think i'm going to be a lot more uh, thoughtful about whether or not i really bother to review them like, for example, one title that's currently on the channel is called The Hot Rock, uh, directed by Peter Yates with George Siegel and Robert Redford. It's a fun film. I watched it the other night, but I just really thought I really don't have a whole lot to say about that. Certainly not a whole episode's worth. Um, there are some cool moments. I, I would even go so far as to recommend checking it out if you like, you know, kind of buddy heist caper films. Uh, with a comedic element, a little bit of action, and some great character acting. Uh, Zero Mostella's in it. He's got a pretty memorable part there as well. Great vintage New York shots. Uh, you see the World Trade Center uh, under construction. Uh, and so, yeah, there's a lot, lot to enjoy there, but I'm not sure I really <laughs> want to dedicate a whole episode to it. And so that's just one example. But um, I don't really see anything else 
I mean, yeah, there are some other, you know, that I may not get into, you know, as far as 72 releases. But once we get to 73, then I feel like, yeah, maybe we can start jumping around a little bit. I don't know. We'll, we'll just have to wait and see. But I, I definitely feel like I'd, I'd like to kind of, you know, keep things um, interesting. And that may mean either doing more with Criterion Cast main episodes to talk about new releases and things of that sort, or perhaps uh, pending little quickie reviews to Criterion new releases to the end of my regular episode so that I'm a little bit more involved in the mix of stuff that came out before or after whatever point on the timeline I might be. So that's just me thinking out loud and maybe slightly asking for feedback or commentary uh, input from anybody who's bothered to listen to the episode up to this point. Um, and that's, again, really where I want to keep the emphasis is on engagement. You know, um, I've been doing a fair amount of TikTok lately because I really was delighted with the response that I got from these little short clips and all of the interest that was generated. Um, TikTok has its limitations as a discussion format, um, and even the ability to post links is pretty, you know, non-existent there. You can leave comments, and um, and so you know, I'm still kind of getting to know that community, and I do appreciate kind of a, a younger perspective from a lot of the users there. Uh, likewise, or maybe in contrast to that, uh, I am not as big of a fan of Facebook. Um, or Twitter, uh, just, I don't know, there's there's negative associations I have with both of those apps. It's not really so much the people that are on them, it's just the apps themselves and um, just some of the downside. I don't want to really go off on a tangent too far there, but um, there are just reasons that I have chosen not to be as active on those platforms as I once was. I'm not canceling my account and not logging off for good and just keeping my contributions there to a minimum does that mean i think tiktok is like all great noble good people and the other platforms are not no um it's just i don't know just where i'm at and that's i guess <laughs> that's as much as i have to say about it for right now um so let me yeah maybe i should just wrap this up and and just um say thank you uh, to my guests and uh, yeah I'll, I'll i'll take the risk by naming people who have particularly meant a lot to me uh kind of, i'll start with jordan esso he was the guy who was on my very first discussion about dillinger is dead he kind of helped me proceed with this little experiment that i had in mind uh, so thank you, Jordan. Uh, Trevor Baird, of course, he's just my pal, uh, going way back to the Eclipse Viewer and all of that, and uh, he's made some great contributions. Uh, you know, Aaron West, he and I are kind of part of the Criterion Cast crew as well, and uh, just really appreciate so much what Aaron does. And uh, he's not been as frequent of a contributor to my show because he's got his own thing going on, but uh, a solid guy and uh, much appreciated. Uh, Brad McDermott, love you, man. You are fantastic. William Remmers, uh, Derek J. Power, uh, Richard Doyle, Jason Beamish, 
Um, you know, fantastic guys. Uh, Grant Bromley, you have not been in a while, but I definitely like what you bring. You kind of have your own unique perspective. Good guy. David Seeley, definitely one of the, the fans of the show who became a great contributor. and look forward to getting you back on pretty soon. Um, boy, who else? Uh, Adam Spickerman. I, I, I'm always impressed with Adam's you know, expertise. I mean, he's an editor and he's, you know, film school grad and just really has fantastic and fascinating insights into the process of, of movie making. Um, boy, you know, now, now I'm in it because I, (laughs) there's other names I haven't mentioned yet, but, um, oh, let's see who else is on, on the docket here. Uh, oh, Josh Hornbeck. Good grief. How would it take me so long to mention Josh? Josh, you, you are another fantastic sort of pillar of support for me. Really appreciated and and really enjoyed watching you take off with your own podcasting project with the Criterion Channel Surfing. Um, Dave Eaves, you know, you've dropped in from time to time with some great contributions. Really enjoyed our last conversation with Zadowichi. And uh, John Lobinger, you're kind of in that same niche there, uh, an occasional guest, but always super appreciated. And uh, yeah, I love you too, man. You, you're a good guy. I really I like your heart and your wit. Uh, and and that that extends you know, to, to so many other people here. Oh, Robert Taylor. Robert, boy, what a blast. What a riot. Uh, you always bring great energy and humor and zest and you know every episode you're on is just like it's a winner just because robert is uh, one of a kind and and uh, greatly appreciated uh michael worth now there's a cool guy uh he has lived the dream accomplished martial artist film director actor tons of great stories and uh brings brings a lot of us very close to uh, the world of action cinema through his personal experience and great observations. Uh, Norman Buckley, you know, I think he's in the middle of doing his next season of uh, Sweet Magnolias down there in Georgia. And uh, you've been on a few times and greatly admire and respect the work you do, your wisdom. You seem like just a really great person, somebody to really get to know. Phil DeCane, my fellow Michigander, and a uh, you know, good guy. Yeah, another fun contributor here. Somebody who I can just feel very connected and very comfortable, you know, shooting the breeze with. Uh, oh, Stephanie and Savannah, the, my friends from Purple Noon. Uh, you, you are both beautiful young women and uh, very funny, very wise. I, I love your energy and wit. And, uh, you know, you're nice enough to give me a shout out on all of your episodes. And that's, that means a lot. Uh, and I'm really glad that we've made that connection. Uh, Robert Chaffee, I think you've been on what, once or twice, maybe just once. Was it just Fiddler on the Roof? But I know you're going to be back on uh, for the Pied Piper whenever we get to that. And uh, super looking forward to having another great conversation with you, your love of uh, music and cinema, the theater, all of that. If I have offended or, or or overlooked anybody, I mean, you know, Cole and Erica, I think you guys were on with a, with me for Tulane Blacktop. Ryan Gallagher, you did a Godzilla movie with me. And, of course, you're the guy already. I've already mentioned you. 
kind of scrolling through my past episodes there, I, I, I may have gotten most everybody of the, oh, uh, Marcy Webb, uh, you've been on, you were on for the Beatrix Potter there, uh, just kind of scrolling back here, and uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed getting to know you as well. Uh, Mark Rep, another guy from Michigan that uh, was on, uh, Jordan's friend Mido Taha, you've been on with uh, Pura Tex and Fellini Films. Oh boy, let's see. I, okay, I think I'm just going to cut it from there. So if I slighted you, it's certainly been inadvertent. Oh, Daisuke Beppu. Yeah, you guys, you did the Bombay talkie with me, and I hope to get you on when we get to Savages, another Merchant Ivory film. Um, yeah, so I'm gonna. I'm just going to have to cut it off there. Uh, oh, oh. <laughs> Arik Devins, uh, yeah, and Scott and I, uh, you guys have both contributed. You're also kind of part of my criterion cast buddy crew and uh yeah we we got to get another main episode going there so okay um oh and martin kessler <laughs> martin, yeah, you've done some really nice uh contributions talking about czech cinema uh, you were on a zadoichi film with me a while back um and then my old colleague keith enright um uh, yeah, you, you did uh, multiple Maniacs. Uh, we've got Pink Flamingos coming up next. I don't know if you're going to join me for that one or not. I don't think you're even on the list, but uh, love you, Keith, and uh, continue to just wish you all the best. And, uh, yeah, you and I go back a bit. Lauren LaGiudice, uh, she was on with Tristana, and um, that, was a, that was a good conversation. Okay, <laughs> I'm really, really done. Apologies uh, for anybody who's not been mentioned by name but i think those are the the core contributors all right one more doug mccambridge <laughs> oh okay that's it final cut anyways i i do want to just give that special word of appreciation to 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 all of those who've been named and all of those who maybe because you were further back on my list um or i my i jumped over it Apologies for that. Uh, oh, Mark Rep. Okay, Mark. <laughs> uh, I think maybe I already mentioned you. I'll have to go back and listen and edit this out if that's uh, inaccurate. <sighs> Boy. Well, anyways, that's uh, it's been a, a great experience, and I certainly hope to have many more years of continuing to do this. But episode 100 is a time to step back and uh, assess where we're at how we got here and maybe a little bit of where we go next so that's my 100th episode everybody um let me know what you think drop a comment on the uh the link in facebook or message me email me and uh you know give me that little boost of encouragement that keeps me going okay thank you for listening in and we'll come back to you next time we're going to be talking about John Waters and Pink Flamingos should be pretty wild, pretty unforgettable conversation, whichever way it goes. So until then, I am signing off. 